we'll see how we do. It makes things a little bit fuzzy here. Um, and you look a little fuzzier. Well, this is the new reality. And so these are things that we have to adjust to. We're not certain if being up here and being that far away from you requires us wearing a mask. Uh, these are things that we're trying to sort out as we move ahead. But next Sunday, uh, the Minister of Health mandates in Oxford County that we must wear a mask when we enter the, when the, enter the building and keep it on. So please bear that in mind. <clears throat> I'm going to be sharing uh, the story of David and Sophia Flood. It appears in the spring edition of the Servant magazine. And it illustrates how our life stories unfold over weeks and months and years and even decades. We go back 100 years to 1921. And this young couple, in their 20s, left their homeland in Sweden to go to be missionaries in a remote area of the Congo. And they went, as any one young, young, young couple would do, with that joy, that passion, that excitement, uh, anticipating what God is going to do with, through them as they go to bring the gospel for the first time to this area of the Congo. <clears throat> but when they got to their destination, they weren't received well. The village chief would not allow them to live in the village. So they lived outside the village, built a mud hut, and waited and waited. The only contact they had with the people was that a young boy would come once a week to sell them chickens and eggs. And so the wife took this opportunity to begin sharing with this little African boy about Christ. And this went on week after week after week. Eventually, Svia became pregnant, and a little girl was born. But tragically, the mother died a few days later. So, at age 27, David, her husband, is left heartbroken. He dug a grave and buried his wife. And all those dreams, those, those possibilities of serving God came to a tragic end for him. The future looked dark and hopeless. This new father, this young husband. You know, if you've been through death of a close family member, you can appreciate uh, the dynamics here and all the, the emotions that come to play, all the thoughts, trying to, to process all of this. And we can sense this young man's pain, David, his grief, because we experience hard times in life. We experience death. We may be left with pain, broken dreams, broken relationships, and we may wonder where God is or what he's doing or why he seems to be taking so long to respond to us. Should we be, su be surprised when things go from bad to worse? Well, not if we understand the Garden of Eden and what happened there. And when 
they are banished from the garden, God tells them life is going to be tough. It's going to be hard just to eke out a living. Things are not going to go well. You're already in a process of dying. Jesus said, in this life, we're going to experience troubles. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, and he talks about our present sufferings. He's talking about things in this life. The things that are tough for us, our present sufferings, are part of this world. And then he went on to say, and this is Romans 8, uh, he goes on to say this verse that we hang on to and sometimes rest out of context and sometimes use it for people that it doesn't really apply to. But this is for God's people. We know that those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. That's J.B. Phillips' paraphrasal of that. I think that's a, a good way just to drive that home to us. We know that to those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. It doesn't necessarily say good for us. It's good for God's purposes. And God can... And he does use our hard times for his good purposes. And this morning, I want us to be encouraged to trust God in the hard times because God intends to use them for his good purposes in our lives. Join me in prayer. Father, we open ourselves to what you want to say to us through your word and through your spirit. And Father, we ask that you would encourage us, deepen our trust in you, our confidence in you, and in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a common storyline in the Bible that God uses hard times in people's lives and he makes use of them. Because God never wastes things that happen. He uses them for his greater purposes. Think of Abraham. It was a big calling to travel 900 miles eventually from his original homeland in what is modern-day Iraq and go way up north to Haran and then finally down to be as, live as a nomad in a land he didn't know about and to move about trying to eke out a living. God promised him a son, and that son didn't seem to come. His wife was not able to conceive, except God intervened. And in their 90s, they become first-time parents. The hard times that these Swedish missionaries went through in Africa seemed to be a dead end. It just seemed to be tragic. But their hard times were not in vain, as, as we'll see later. Now, I want, to, I want to clarify something that I think is important for us. Because people tell us their stories, and we hear stories that you're going to hear today. And we need to make some distinctions about life stories, about people's experiences. Let me suggest that life stories do not demonstrate that things always turn out for our good and our comfort. They are only illustrations of how the Lord worked in someone's life, but they're not predictable patterns. And life stories do not define biblical truth. 
God is not bound to do the same thing in our lives. We cannot expect or assume that things will go the same for us or that God is obligated to do what we expect or what we want or what we hope. But life stories do encourage us to keep going on and trusting ourselves into God's hands and to his purposes. So the life story of one biblical family that we're going to share today, uh, obviously you know ahead of time, there's going to be from the book of Ruth. We're going to see how God used really hard times in their lives for his ultimate good purposes. So this family lived about a thousand years before Christ, and we're turning to the book of Ruth. And I'm going to read uh, the first 19 verses, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. The book of Ruth follows the book of Judges, and the last verse in the book of Judges says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way... Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters Return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Note that. That's your conclusion. The Lord has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried." 
May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Yes, it really was Naomi. So as we think about this one family that played such a key role in God's purposes, uh, we find a minimum of details about the family because their tribal line of Judah and the ultimate grandson that's born is the big story, is the main story. But we have enough to give us a picture. So their parents are living in Bethlehem, that's near Jerusalem. And it's an important detail because this is the ultimate birthplace of the Messiah that would come. Beth, house, lahem means bread or food, and epaphrata means abundance. So the family was in a good place, a house of provision, of abundance. And the parents are from the tribe of Judah. This is so important. Both of them are. Because tribal lines and tribal clans were very important to the people of Israel, to the Jews. They still are today. And Judah was the tribal line of the promised Messiah. This was God's ultimate purpose that they were part of. And we had the benefit of hindsight, don't we? We can see how it all worked out. But they have no idea. They, would, they couldn't have dreamed this in their, in their wildest dreams. And this is a family with promises indicated by their names. Elimelech means my God is king. That's a, he's living out that faith. And Naomi means pleasing or pleasant. So it seems like everything is great. Everything is good. They have, now they have sons, Malon and Chilion. And these two names have particular meanings. Malon means sickness, and Chilion means wasting. And there's an inference by some commentators that perhaps they were sickly children to begin with, because Jewish people always gave names with meanings. We can just assume. I don't know. But the parents have clan and family property in the area, as we, as we see in the opening verses of the book of Ruth. And that's an important detail in the story. Land property, real estate, was handed down through the male heirs. It was not to be sold except under extreme circumstances, and then it could be redeemed back. So things seem to be going well for this family. They've got, he, he seemed to be well-to-do. They had property until they came up against some very hard times. And you and I, if we haven't been there, we will be there, perhaps many times in life. And things can suddenly fall apart. They can break down. They can blindside us. They can leave us confused, uncertain about what's going on, fearful, insecure, 
worried. This pandemic is a life changer. So the family faced hard times. First of all, a, f a serious famine. Now, I have no idea what a famine is like. I've never gone to bed hungry. I might have wanted more, but I've never gone to bed hungry. And I, I, unless we've lived in other parts of the world where famine is a, is, is a common thing, we have no idea. But imagine this hot season we've had until this weekend to go on and on, month after month, maybe a year or more. And this is an agricultural-based society. They live off the land, and there's a famine, and resources run out. This is serious, and they feel they cannot survive in Judah. Were they not trusting God? God is my king, Elimelech's, Elimelech's name means. Uh, did they, others stayed, not everyone left Bethlehem, maybe others went, but not everyone. Bethlehem was the house of bread, God was their king. But in this severe pressure in their life, they seek temporary relief in, in the pagan Moab. And I say pagan, or I say a temporary, because it talks about going there to sojourn. They're not intending to stay there the rest of their lives, I'm sure. But they're going into territory that is pagan. The, the god that they worship, their national deity, was a savage war god. And we learn a little picture about how people worship that god in 2 Kings 3.27. Uh, the king of Moab faced a military defeat. And so we're told he took his firstborn son, which would be his heir, to the one that would succeed him as king, and he offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall to the, to the war god. That's the kind of environment they're, work, they're moving into. It's like Lot moving close to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not going to be pretty there. And then they endure a 30-mile journey around the top of the Dead Sea. Let me give you a picture. On their left is the Mediterranean Sea. So there's Israel. And running down on the eastern border is the River Jordan, and it empties into the Dead Sea. Right here is Jerusalem and Bethlehem. The Dead Sea right across is Moab. And so they take this very hard journey over the top, we believe, about 30 miles, I'm sure walking, to live in this other country. And things don't get any better. They've, they've had a famine in their land. Now they have a famine in their lives. And first of all, the husband dies. We're not told why or how. The sons who marry local women, 10 years later, they've died. So all the male heirs in the family have died. There's no one to carry on the family line. Naomi is left with this sense, God has raised his fist against me. God's done this. I am bitter. 
And you can appreciate it, women especially you would appreciate, if your means of livelihood, represented by your husband, was suddenly taken away. And so she's left without a husband and without sons to support her and carry on the family line. It's devastating. And she's in a foreign country, far away from her home community. Now, you know, we get so used in, in the Western world that someone dies, we go to the funeral, and, we, and then we go and carry on, and we kind of forget about the people who are left behind. We get busy with our life, but the people left behind after a funeral, after the death, have to struggle and face this day after day after day. It's their new reality. And so we must not discount how this impacted Naomi. And we don't know the time frame here, but ultimately, Naomi decides to take the long trip back to her hometown because she learns, as we have read, that the famine is over in the home country, so she's going to go back there. And the two daughters-in-law decide to go with her. And she gives them a choice to stay, as, as we've read, and Ruth decides to follow, follow her. So they come back, and so at the end of, of the chapter, of chapter 1, here's how Naomi comes back in verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women explained, exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Can this be the pleasant one? That's her name. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And that's the spirit in which she comes back. That's her belief system. You can see what our belief system does for us, how it either carries us or lets us down when we're in hard times. She's consumed with bitterness. Did she feel that God was punishing her because the family moved out of the, of the homeland and went to foreign pagan Moab? Was God punishing her because her sons married outside of the Jewish nation? We don't know. When David fled, the Swedish missionary buried his wife he handed his infant daughter to another missionary couple. And he said, I'm going back to Sweden. I have lost my wife. I can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. Understandable. You know, we might wrestle with those things if we were in his shoes. And eventually, as the story goes, David remarried had four children, became an alcoholic back in Sweden. What a terrible development for this person who started out so well. You know, it is a challenge, isn't it? To trust God when things seem impossible or hopeless or overwhelming. And it is human to want to give in to negative thoughts and feelings or even give up 
on God uh, or turn on God. But we must not lose sight of God and his truths. We know, we believe that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God uses our hard times for his good purposes. The rest of the book of Ruth is the script of God using the family's hard times for his good purposes to extend the line of Messiah through them. So now they're back, and they come back, end of chapter 1, they return from Moab accompanied together. They arrive in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is a very uh, significant detail in this, in this account. It's, it's the timing of it that becomes their salvation for, for, physical, uh, um, for physical survival. In chapter 2, beginning in chapter 2, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. So now the writer is filling in this, connecting the dots here. She had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose favor eyes I find favor, which was a common thing in that part of the world. It would have been the same in Moab. When they're gathering the harvest, and it was wheat and barley they were gathering, they would cut off the stalks, bind them in some kind of, it could be sheaves, we know about binding in sheaves in our country, and, and then they would be carried, and that eventually they would thresh that. But they always left some behind, and God, God had given orders through Mo- Moses, when you're harvesting, Uh, Don't clean it clean. Leave some for those who don't have any so they can come in and glean, can pick up leftovers. So this was was the food bank provision of their day. And so this is a very natural thing to do. And this goes on and on. And eventually, Naomi plans for Ruth to marry Boaz. That's that's the the storyline here. Because she realizes because of who he is, he is in the line of her husband, and this is the, the way that is provided for women in those days if their husband died and left no sons to carry on the inheritance. This is what Deuteronomy says, and this is totally foreign to us, totally foreign to us. And, but this is right and proper, uh, it was critical for them. It's kind of an arranged marriage that was provided for childless widows. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Uh, the chiropractor that I go to in Brantford is a fourth generation business. You know, things are carried on from generation to generation. And that's 
kind of the way it worked in Israel, but it was even more, more significant. So this was so critical that there be a son to carry on the family line. And so Boaz is this near relative, and he's from the same clan, but he's not the first one in line. He's the second one in line. And so uh, I'm not reading chapter 3. It talks about the process that this went through. But in chapter 4 now, Boaz went to the town gate and sat there. And this is the place where decisions are made, these judgments. This would be like going to the court for official business. He sits there at the town gate. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, that is the first in line to uh, marry or to get by the land, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. And then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. And then Boaz pulls out the, the trump card, <laughs> and he says, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. You've got to marry her. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And so that is settled. And as we read on, um, now to go to verse 13. And fast forwarding because, fast forwarding because this is the main point in the story. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse who was the father of King David. And that's what God was doing through this family and through all the hard times that were going on. His good purpose was for Boaz to father a son who would become the grandfather of King David, who becomes such a key person in the messianic line. Why did these three men die? We have no idea. But possibly, there was a genetic, hereditary sickness that was being passed down and would have become a problem later on leading towards the line of Messiah. I don't know. But as you think about it, something seemed to happen just as a way of life. God's good purposes only become clear two generations later. That's a long time. 
God used the hard times that the Swedish missionaries went through for his purposes. That only became clear much later. And now, let me share some more of that story. So we know their desire to serve the Lord in Africa had turned from joy to tragedy with the death of the wife and the husband turning away from the Lord and going back to the homeland. But what about that African boy that, that came and, and uh, was ministered to? And it chokes me up to, to tell the story, even to read it. God worked in, that, in the life of that boy. And he became a follower of Christ. He put his faith in Jesus. And then he grew up and he built a school in the village. And he led all of his students to Christ. And then he led all of their parents to Christ. And finally, he led the chief to Christ. Ultimately, there were 600 Christians in the village. All because what God did through the witness of that missionary couple, in spite of and through all their hard times, but what about the baby girl that was handed off? Maybe you've been thinking about that. God didn't forget her. She'd been, uh, she was adopted eventually. Named, her name was, she was named Aggie. She grew up in South Dakota. She married, became a follower of Christ, had two children. And one day she was looking in a, a missionary magazine and, and there's a story which turned out to be, and she wasn't, didn't know this at the time, it turned out to be the story of her parents. It was in the Swedish Christian magazine, and it included a picture of a grave with a white cross with the name of Svea Flood, her mother. Later on, several years later, uh, Aggie and her husband went to Sweden for their 25th anniversary. Someone had given them a, a gift for that. And so when she's in Sweden, she searched out her father, and they said, don't talk to him about God. He's down on God. And she found him in a rundown building. He was now 73, suffering from diabetes, had a stroke, and because of cataracts, could hardly see. And she began talking to him about the Lord. She said, I'm the little girl that you left in Africa. And he said, well, I never meant to give you away. I, I just couldn't handle things. She said, that's okay. God had taken care of, of me. And her father said, God forgot all of us. And then she told him that, no, you and mama didn't go to Africa in vain. She didn't die in vain. The little boy you you brought up to the Lord, grew, and led the whole village to Christ. The one seed you planted kept growing and growing. And there are hundreds of Christians in Africa there in the Congo because of your, faithful, your faithfulness. Papa Jesus loves you. He never hated you. And that broke his heart. And he repented, and that day put his life back in the hands of Jesus. A few weeks later, 
had gone into the presence of the Lord. What an encouragement to us. We need those kind of stories, don't we? We need to know that we can trust God. But there's an observation I want to make. Our biblical worldview impacts how we respond to hard times, or our worldview in general. It really impacts how we respond to hard times. Naomi viewed, and she would be classed as a Christian today. She was a worshiper of Jehovah. She viewed hard times as God's displeasure. And it could very well have been based on the the blessings and the cursings that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 28 just before they were to enter the promised land. Blessings if you follow God and obey him, you, the crops will be planted, everything will be great. But if you disobey him, they'll be cursed. Your, your property will be cursed, your land will be cursed, everything will go wrong. And everything went wrong for her. And her belief system took her down the road of bitterness to see think of herself as being Mara, a bitter person. Hopefully she repented of that later in life. Even the godly man Job wrestled with blaming his hardships on God. God, why are you doing this? What's in me that you're punishing me for? Now he later repented of that. We need to view our hard times as opportunities for God to work in us and through us. We need to look at our hard times as opportunities for God to work in us and through us and beyond us. It will keep us from reacting against the Lord or feeling sorry for ourselves. Scripture teaches us that God uses our hard times, our sufferings in this life for his good purposes. Let me suggest three observations about God's purposes. One is God's general good purposes. And that's kind of living in this world as, as we face things. It could be that the difficulties that come into our life, the hard times, God uses to take us in different directions in our lives. Just like the famine moved Naomi's family to move to Moab and to have Ruth become part of the family and be the mother of in the Messiah family line. Just like COVID-19 brings a lot of resettings. Businesses close. People have to find new jobs, have to move away. Our lifestyles are changed. These are hard times. Hard times should draw us to push us to the Lord in deeper trust and worship. We never know what God is going to use taking us out of hard times and beyond. The second thing, in addition to God's general good purposes, is what I would suggest is God has specific, specific good purposes. And that's based on Romans 8. It's to shape us more and more into the character and the attitudes of Jesus. We should never quote Romans 8, 28 without going on to verse 29. God make, uses everything that comes into our life 
for his purpose of conforming us into Christ's likeness. James says in his opening verses in the book of James, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face hard times, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It makes us better persons. That's what God wants to do through those hard times, to, to develop attitudes of Christ. God has made up his mind in eternity past about this. He predestined us. He predestined us. He set us out. He, he, he put this in play. He's committed to this to conform us to the image of his son. That's his specific purpose in our life as followers of Christ. He intends to have many people who resemble his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many sons and daughters. We are God's work in progress. We're God's work in progress. We are only clay in the potter's hands. Isaiah said this, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Used to be a song that some of you will recognize if you're old enough. Well, most of you are old enough. <laughs> Chorus says, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. That's what he's doing, even in the hard times, perhaps even more so in the hard times. What we need to do, and this is the takeaway that I want to encourage you with, we need to take the long view that frees us to trust God about his purposes that we cannot see now and may not even see in this life, not the, not the full outcome of it. If you are at all familiar with the sports world, you'll recognize the name Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow is a, is a now retired NFL football player, but a very outspoken evangelical and, and actually spoke at the funeral of Ravi Zachariah, if you watch the service. And he's, he recently gave a video message, and he says, keep your faith intact and remember that all of the Bible's messengers struggled. And he went on to point out, you know, when you look at the people that serve God, uh, they went through tough times. So I'm quoting here, maybe you're going through a time in your life where you feel like you've just been wounded greatly. It, it hasn't been in your year, it hasn't been your day, and you just don't feel like this is your time. But this could be your time for learning. This could be your time for growing. This could be your time for adapting. This could be the time that is a test for you, but tomorrow it gets to turn into a testimony. But I can tell you this, we get to trust an unknown future to a known God because we know how much he loves us. We know what he did for us in sending his son. He gave his best for us. And when we remember that, we, we can trust in the character of our God because we know how much he loves us. 
That's how we get through the tough times. Right where you're at, whatever you're doing, whatever you're going through, he loves you. You were enough for his son to die on the cross. That's how much you're loved. Hold on to that in your time of need. And then the third thing from general good purposes, specific good purposes, is the ultimate good purpose. It's to become fully like Jesus Christ. And as 1 John says, when he appears, we we don't know what we're going to be like, but when we see him, we shall be like him. We're going to be transformed. Even our body is going to be transformed and our resurrected body to be like him. And Romans 8, 17 to 18. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his sufferings. Hard times. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. That's his ultimate good purpose. And this is the ultimate long view for people of faith. Ultimate glory. And in the meantime, things happen. I had a, neat, I had a Facebook message from someone that I hadn't heard of from for six years. He had left the community that I'm from. And I'd had a lot to do with he and his wife. I married them. I dedicated their two boys. I taught one of the boys guitar lessons. Then they separated, and it was nasty. I tried to work with them. I ended up spending time with the husband, and we did a Bible study together, and he made an initial profession of faith. So this is the text I got just a few days ago. I just wanted to say hi to you and tell you that my faith is still strong, and it gets stronger every day, and the credit has to go to you. I was a big mess when my wife left me. My family was everything to me, and my boys are still, but I know why God, why God wanted all that to happen now. Now, that's his take on it, but it's the encouragement that through tough times, God's purposes still carry on. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to trust you with our hard times. And right now, you know each of us sitting in this room can probably identify with a tough time that's on our plate or on our calendar or in our future. Help us by faith to look ahead and to believe with all of our heart that even through whatever we encounter, whatever we have to deal with, you are using this to work in our life, to shape us patiently, carefully, gently into the likeness of your Son. And we trust that to you in Christ's name. Amen.